Welcome to Always Picking Electric Securities, where I give you all kinds of stories on the markets. I'm Alex Marku, and I hope you learned something today. Alright everybody, welcome to the new edition of the Apes Podcast. For today's episode, I'm going to be running through a course of all the market crashes that have happened up until the 17th century. And our timeline for the crashes starts just about 2000 years ago in 49 BC when a certain law was passed. And the law that was passed was by Julius Caesar. You see, during this time, they were in war times um, with Italy, I believe. So the law was introduced where Roman lenders had to hold a certain amount of Italian farmland in order to avoid what they considered capital flight. So you couldn't just, you know, lend out all this money and then if the war went south, you could just leave. So that law was passed in 49 BC and it was really ignored for about 80 years. Now, the next key point in this buildup to this financial crash that occurred happened in 14 AD when the power transferred from Julius Caesar to Tiberius Caesar. He was the second ruler to take place of uh, Rome and he was really known as a great big spender. Which doesn't really help when you're about to find out what events really led up to the crash on top of his spending habits. But his spending habits weren't really felt until about 17 years later in 31 AD. You see, right around this time period, there was a buildup of a lot of problems happening around Rome. For example, some of the problems that happened were there were three ships that were sunken or lost or pirates, because, you know, that was a thing back then, from big importers. So three big ships were lost at sea from these importers, and they weren't able to import their goods. Another thing that happened around this time period is there was a fall in the value of the ostrich feather and ivory, because... Currency wasn't just kept in coins, there was also barter. So because the value of these dropped, I'm guessing trade and barter changed substantially. Another contributing factor that led to these financial turmoils was that there were the Phoenician strikes and they were bankrupting these big companies. So areas in Egypt were striking and rebelling against just regular work and because of this, a lot of labor and demand and supplies were ultimately not delivered to Rome which also contributed to more, you know, financial turmoil. Now, on top of all of this, it was your king, Tiberius, or whatever they were back then, who decided it's time to implement Caesar's law, right? It just so happens that the law that was written 80 years ago finally needs to be implemented. With all of this BS happening around in their little financial worlds at the time being, he decided to implement Caesar's law and give everyone an 18-month period to figure out how to rebalance their books if they need to. And it's not really any surprise that during this 18-month period, there was a numerous amount of bank runs that happened because of the Roman banking houses being affected financially. Now, what a bank run means is if everyone were just to go to their banks and start withdrawing all their cash because they're in fear of that bank going under failure. And back then, I'm pretty sure if your bank went under failure, You don't have some credit system to go collect all your funds from. Nowadays, it's a little bit different, but still, 
there's always that risk out there. So for this whole 18 month period of everyone trying to rebalance their books, bank runs happening left and right, shit finally was about to hit the fan when the 18 month period was over. Because that's when we found out that almost all of the Rome Senate was caught with their pants down. You see, almost every single lender in the Roman lands were not holding any bit of land from Italy. And because they weren't complying with Caesar's law, which was written 80 damn years ago for them, they had to find a way to quickly rebalance their books. So the way they did this is they recalled almost every single loan they had, and some they had to do it at extreme discounts. What this did is it contracted the money supply. So whatever money supply was out there in this hypothetical invisible hand market back then because you can't really see it was tightened because all of these lenders were recalling their loans well here's the catch to this they had to rebalance their books so they were recalling all of these loans to get cash but it's not like they were going to spend this cash in the economy you see tiberius said you guys have to use this cash to buy italian land so you can qualify for this you know caesar's law and because they had to use the cash from recalled loans to buy Italian land, this meant there was way less liquid cash than what you would have thought with the recalled loans in general. So overall, you have a bunch of loans being recalled by lenders. They're buying Italian land nonstop. And what this does is it makes other lenders continue to recall more loans at even crazier discounts, which puts everything on a fire sale. And the cherry on the top that Tiberius decided to do with his market skills was to drive up interest rates, which by no means is the wrong thing to do. It's what he should have done. But interest rates went from about 4% to 12% in a three-year period, and a lot of banks in Rome failed due to a credit crunch. Because these rates were rising faster than the loans they were recalling and reissuing, banks weren't able to make any liquid cash. And any liquid cash banks had, they had to buy Italian land with it. So it was a pretty big massive shit show for about 18 months to three years because Tiberius took a while to finally choose an action. When he finally chose to act, this is the solution he chose. He decided to select five senators so they could provide interest-free loans for the next three years and the land that the loans were acquired for were marked at double face value. So what this meant is if you bought land for $1,000, it was marked at $2,000. And what this really did is it encouraged banks to hold on to the loans so they could collect on that interest and not sell it off right away. And Tiberius gave these five senators 100 million sterces to be able to just provide lenders with liquid cash so they could provide means for the next three years. This saved the market overall and the next ruler after Tiberius picked up his form of what they call quantitative easing back then, which was just to essentially print more money, but just to buy you some more time. So to wrap it up in short, our first ever financial crash recorded about 2000 years ago came from a Roman law that was implemented about 80 years too late. And because of this, you had that 80 years worth of lenders just buying land and whatever and they had to rebalance 80 years worth of service or whatever in an 18 month period so shit hit the fan and a hundred million dollars worth of sesterces were printed now to give you a picture of how much that is at least back in the day there 
The average uh, loaf costs about half a sesterce, and the average soldier, so not person, but this is if you were in the Roman military, the average soldier had a salary of 1,000 sesterces. So this means that if the 100 million sesterces were distributed between each soldier, there would be about 100,000 soldiers getting paid a free salary. If you wanted to take this on a grander scheme level and say that this money was put to better use to feed the actual people of Rome, then you would have been able to produce 200 million loaves of bread with this amount of money. That's a lot of bread. Then, about 200 years later or so, there was another crisis that happened with Rome, but this time it's because they were too big. They had a military and an imperial crisis. One of their rulers got assassinated, and it allowed other neighboring countries to think that they can start invading Rome. Well, this led to a bunch of financial distress, a lot of trade routes had to be closed off, and overall, they had an economic crisis throughout the 3rd century. And since this economic crisis was primarily driven because Rome was just too big and was getting invaded by everywhere, I don't really feel like including it as part of a stock market crash because there's not really much you can do if everyone's attacking you and you're in the middle of wars and all this thing's going on. So I'm just going to gloss over this 3rd century crash, but let you know that there was some economic tensions during the 3rd century for the Romans. Now the next economic crash that occurred happened around the 7th century and it was a coin exchange crisis of 692. And this was a crisis between the Byzantine Empire Justinian II and the Arabic Empire of Umayyad Caliphate. And basically to sum up what this whole economic crisis was is that Justinian II refused to accept Umayyad's new version of the gold coins. You see he feared that for the Byzantine financial system there would be some kind of double counting in coinage because when Umayyad issued his own gold standard coins, what Justinian found out is that his coins actually weighed more. And the difference in weight was so significant that when there were large purchases made, Justinian found out that sometimes there was up to a 20% difference between his coin and the new Arabic coin. And because Justinian II refused to accept this tribute of this new coin, it led to the Battle of Sebastopolis. Tensions eventually grew out because, you know, the taxpayers grew restless, and they eventually went for the financial officials and burned them, and they also took Justinian II and tortured him in front of all the spectators by cutting off his nose. And it was shortly after Justinian II's death that the Byzantine Empire went through something that historians would call the 20 years of anarchy. So pretty much they probably went through 20 years of hell after this. So much for not accepting the coin of your neighbors even if it is slightly heavier. I mean just raise prices or something. But you got too greedy and his nose got chopped off. Next on my list of economic crashes happens in the 14th century in Italy. It was a banking crisis between the Bardi family and the Peruzzi's and essentially every single bank. But before it happened to essentially every bank, it was in 1310 that there was the Bardi family. They were a Florentine banking family and they owned a lot of the land. Between the Bardi family, the Peruzzi family, and sorry if I say this wrong, but the Acaioli family, those three branches covered essentially 100% of what the world was back then. 
they essentially covered England, the Netherlands, North Africa, and the Middle East. And remember, back then in the 1300s, not a lot of people knew about North America. So this Florentine banking family essentially had their wraps around that medieval world. Just like the Rothschilds have their wraps around the modern world today. Now because these three banking families had their grasps on essentially the whole world, they were able to profit from fees on exchanges of goods, and they were also able to collect interest on loans. Now back in the day, apparently there was a canon law that outlawed collecting interest on loans because it was considered risky to give people credit. But it won't be until about 20 years later that the true risk is about to be felt. Because it was in the 1330s when these banking families lent a lot of money to King Edward III to help fund his next upcoming war. What they didn't know then is that this war led to what is known as the Hundred Years War. Rip to them. And it was about 10 years later around the 1340s that these bankers started to realize the mistake they did by lending too much money. What do you think their solution was? Well shoot, let's lend some more. And there are a couple reasons they would have, you know, chosen to lend more even though it sounds like the stupid thing to do. And one of the reasons is because in order for them to be allowed to export products, they had to lend money to the king. So they had to keep lending money to the king regardless so they could export their products. Another reason they had to lend money is because that's how they were profiting. So they had to do something to continue their profits. And for 10 years, things were working pretty well. And the unfortunate truth is that when you keep kicking the can down the road, eventually you run out of road. And that's exactly what happened in 1343 when it became obvious that King Edward's war would not be over so soon. So what King Edward did is he paid back his debts. But what you don't realize behind the books is that for the last 13 years, these big banks were issuing loans and credits. So even though King Edward III was able to pay back his debts, there was still a large amount of debt that the Barty family and the Perusian banks had. In fact, the Barty family had 900k gold florins that they still needed, and the Peruzzi bank needed 600k gold florins. Well, that same year, the Peruzzi bank went bankrupt. And it was three years later that the Barty family had to liquidate. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call shit hitting the fan. Because in a three-year time period, you had essentially the Florentine banking family collapse. And because that banking family held their roots in so much of the world during that time period, their bankruptcy actually helped spark on a Great Depression that happened later on in the 1340s and lasted for quite some time. The next financial economic crisis I want to gloss over is called the Kipper and Whooper financial crash. This crash started around the Thirty Years' War, so 1618 to 1648 was the time period, and the Holy Roman Empire desperately needed a way to fund their war. At the time, effective taxation didn't exist. So, what they did is they decided to debase their currency. Well, I mean, it doesn't take an expert nowadays to understand that printing your own money over and over again isn't a solid solution for how to get more money. But, that's quite literally what the Roman Empire did. They minted so many new fresh coins that the currency itself became so worthless 
that kids in the streets were playing with coins like they were toys. And this won't be the first time that you hear about how currency is used in other ways than what it was intended to be used for, you know, buying goods. And now for our next crash, I'm going to be jumping all the way until 1634. And this by far is one of my favorite market crashes I've ever heard about, and it's called the Tulip Mania. Now the Tulip Mania is considered to be one of the first speculative asset bubbles, and it occurred during the Dutch Golden Age. Now this bubble when it burst didn't actually affect the Dutch economically like a typical crash should, but it was more of an economic phenomenon than nothing else. You see, at the peak of the bubble, one tulip bulb sold for as much as 10 times the annual salary of a skilled artisan. So today's average salary is about 55k yearly. That means a bulb would have sold for about 550k dollars a pop. And now although it's hard to find some exact economic evidence to pinpoint exact trades and everything that happened, there are many stories and there's still clear enough evidence to call this an asset bubble. For example, from a diary written by Charles Mackey, who was a Scottish writer at the time, he claimed that at one point an offer of 12 acres of real land was made for just one Semper Augustus bulb. And although this Semper Augustus bulb might be very lovely to look at, someone offered 12 acres of real land for it. So how did we get here to where 12 acres of land or even 10 times the annual salary of a skilled artisan is being offered for just one flower bulb? Well, let's go back and look at the history of tulip bulbs, at least back then. And it all started with Carolus Slicius, sorry if I said that name wrong, who was a botanist, and that's a flower person, not a lobotanist, so he didn't go around sticking needles in people's eyes and drilling it with a hammer. What he did is he planted a collection of tulips in 1593. Now, what was so special about tulips compared to a typical flower is that when they bloomed, they had a bright and beautiful and colorful bulb that it produced. Keep this in mind because this is exactly why this was one of the first asset bubbles of its time. And even before tulips became huge, one ship voyage of tulips could yield about 400% profit which, that's really hard to find with commodities, food, or anything else you could transport back then, including silk. And the thing that was tricky about these bulbs is that from seed to bulb, it would take about 7 to 12 years for the flower to bloom. And the bloom seasons were primarily in April and May, and it lasted just about one week. Now, you were able to sell some of the bulbs from June to September, but they weren't really the highest quality, at least if you were comparing it to the peak seasons. And then once the peak seasons ran out, you would have about a dead period between September and next year of April where you really didn't have bulbs to sell. But what you did have were futures contracts. You see, future contracts back in the day were very important for the agricultural field. Anything where a farmer had to plant something was reliant on a futures contract because that essentially generated the demand. Because in a futures contract, what people did during these off-season times is they claimed how many bulbs they would buy for next year. So once September runs out and you can no longer buy bulbs, what people would then do is go to the market, if you could, and you would place a futures contract. And let's say you claim you're going to buy 100 bulbs next year. So that was the whole reason of these contracts. Farmers knew exactly what they needed, and in turn, 
the supply and demand would not be crazy for something that would only blossom six months later. And these future contracts were an integral part to really creating this asset bubble as I'll be explaining it later. Another thing you have to keep in mind now is the Dutch were during their golden age and because they had great economic prosperity and some modern finance methods back then, it allowed them to create a market for these bulbs to allow greater access for the public and others so that they could interact in this market. And now the last little history of these tulip bulbs that you need to know actually didn't come from tulips itself, but it came from the Dutch. Because in 1610, they banned what was known as short selling. So this meant if, let's say, the price of a certain asset or commodity ran through the roof, you can't short sell it so that when it eventually crashes, you profit on it. Now make sure you keep a little mental note on that, as it's going to have a lot to do with what created this bubble. So from when our botanist, Carolus Slicius, decided to plant a bulb of tulips in 1593 to about 1610, we have now discovered a true market in this tulip bulb. It wasn't until 1634 that the speculation period really started. You see, in February of 1634, the French decided to enter the futures market. So this created more demand for the following year. And it also brought along more speculators because they viewed that if the French are able to get into this market, why can't I? And the Dutch created the market so you can actually trade on it. There's a story of how one Dutch marketer describes the trading of these bulbs as something called windenhol or wind trades because no actual bulbs traded hands, just the pricing of these future contracts and they were traded back and forth on a speculative basis. And the reason the price kept increasing is because more and more people were entering the market, which creates more demand. And it only took two years from when the French decided to enter the Dutch market that the tulip bulb was the fourth leading export for the Dutch in 1636, following behind gin, fish, and cheese. So you're telling me that the fourth largest exporting item for a country is a flower right behind alcohol and two different types of food. Now, as I stated earlier, the primary reason for the price jumps in this tulip bulb market was just due to speculation on the futures contracts. So people were speculating how many bulbs would be bought in six months or during these peak times, like I said earlier. And the peak of this tulip bulb mania actually occurred during the winter of 1636 and leading on to 1637. And at the peak of the bulb mania, one single contract on any given day could have been traded hands at least five times, and there were no deliveries of these contracts. So what this means is, someone would buy a contract, let's say beginning of the market, and then that contract would be bought and sold five times at least in one day's session. And this happened for the whole winter period. And it didn't take long for all of the speculation and hopium to go out the window because it was during February of 1637 that the contract prices collapsed, which caused a halt in the bulb market. And it was in the city of Harlem where the initial effects of this collapse was felt because it was in their banking and trading markets that they no longer had that demand, meaning contracts weren't being traded five times a day anymore, so the collapse was imminent. And to make matters worse, 
Harlem was one of the only cities to not accept any court cases in their jurisdiction regarding the tulip mania craze. And the reason this was such a huge deal is because the Dutch government refused to handle any cases about the tulip mania. Instead, they said it was up to the cities and their courts to deal with it in any manner they saw fit. So to have the collapse start in Harlem and have them be one of the only cities to say they are not accepting court cases smells like one of their leading exports to me, fishy. And just to give you an idea of how crazy the tulip mania craze actually was during that winter of 1636 to 37, I'm going to start on a timeline scale of November 12th, which would be 1636, where the price of a bulb was estimated to be about 10, I'm going to say dollars. It wasn't dollars back then, but I'm just going to say $10. Well, 13 days later, on November 25th, the price skyrocketed to 100 and then just a couple days later on December 1st, the price went up to 110. Then 11 days later on December 12th, the price of the bulbs was at 150. Then I guess January must have been a slow month because there really wasn't much other than just back and forth trading. And the peak of this bull mania reached around February 3rd of 1637, where the price of a bulb went anywhere from 190 to about $200. And just six days later, on February 9th, the price of the bulb went back to its 150 range. And this is where things start to get interesting, because the very next day, there was a huge collapse in the market where it quite literally caused a halt in the bulb market. And the halt was so long that it lasted until May 1st. So from February 9th, of 1637 to May 1st, no one was able to trade on these speculative assets. And what do you think the price opened at on May 1st? Back to what it was in November 12th at $10 a pop. So basically, tulip bulbs went from a price point of $10 and just three months later capped off at $190 to $200, which is an insane return. And then six days later, or you could say a week later, there was a huge halt. And the halt lasted about three months. And then just when you decide to wake up when the price is unhalted, you wake up to find out it's at $10 a pop. So rip to anyone that bought on February 9th when the price was $150. And what's very interesting is as much as this was a crash of one single asset, and one of the first speculative asset bubbles of its time, this didn't necessarily impact the Dutch government economically. The Dutch, however, were smart enough to create a law signifying that all futures contracts after the winter of 1636 had to be written as something known as an options contract. And the primary difference of an option contract compared to a futures contract is with a future, you're obligated to buy whatever asset or commodity is on that contract, whereas with the options one, you can actually just buy and sell the quoted price, and then when it comes to expiration of your option, you can determine if you want to exercise it. Now, if you want to truly learn a little bit more about it, you can go in the past episodes where I've talked about derivatives, because it's all there for you. And the reason this is a personal favorite of mine when it comes to market crashes or just market crash stories is because grown adults were trading flowers and they were trading their houses, their land, like 10 times their annual salaries 
just so they could have a flower that looked pretty and it only lasted a week. And if that doesn't spell out degenerate to you, then I don't know what will. So let's move on to the final crisis slash crash that I have for this episode. And it's actually debated amongst historians if this even qualifies as a crash, but I'll go into both sides of the story so you can make up your own mind. And it's considered the general crisis of the 17th century. Now the reason there's a lot of people for the argument that there were crashes there in here and not is because of the lack of evidence linking how certain events created a crash and also how very overgeneralized the problems were. But if you're on the for side and you believe that during the 17th century there was a crisis or a crash really, let me give you the pros for it. Not that there's a pro in a crisis, but if you're for this argument. And historians that believe that there was a crash during this time period say that it happened during the 17th century, primarily felt in Europe, but there were also other areas like in China and India that experienced similar problems. You see, West Europe had a problem politically, economically, and with society, which led to a lot of unrested times. Some events during this general crisis was the English Civil War, which lasted from 1642 to 51, the Fronde in France, which were a bunch of revolutions in France, and they went from 1648 to 53, and you had the climax of the Thirty Year War, going from 1618 to 48, and there was an estimated 4.5 to 8 million soldiers that died during this war. You also had a bunch of revolts against the Spanish crown in Portugal, Naples, and Catalonia. Now, the historians that argue that this was a crash say that the primary concern or the primary root of this problem was that this was a court versus country war, if you will, during this century. So, what classifies as the court was the increase in centralized power, the increase in bureaucratic policies, and an increase in sovereign royal states. So, essentially, you had the Spanish crown and all the bigger players starting to swallow up smaller nation cities. The country, on the other hand, were traditional, regional, and land-based aristocracies. Now, I'm no history buff, so I looked up what aristocracy is, and it essentially just meant your local kings, queens, and rulers of said nation-states. So basically, throughout the 17th century, you had a conflict between the really elite and the somewhat elite. Remember, the poors were still too poor to do shit, so they just had to deal with the conflicts. The secondary problem that historians have pointed to is the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Renaissance happened earlier during the 15th and 16th century, but it was a change of going from the Middle Ages to a more modern society. And the idea is that by having a change in thinking and what really is the best way of life, only uprooted these problems when you had the court and country fighting. You essentially had the super elites fighting with the semi-elites, and then you can only imagine that the poor people, or the common people even at this point, were not having it. So they were willing to protest and they were willing to wage many wars. And then for the Protestant Reformation, which occurred during the 16th century, you had the challenging and questioning of the Catholic Church and the power and practices that they instilled. So, most of the wars that happened above that were stated in the events of the general crisis 
probably stemmed from these religious wars. And then the final icing on the cake that historians claim to say could have contributed to this crisis or crash was there was something known as a Little Ice Age. Now, this Little Ice Age is debated during the time period it happened, but what I decided to choose is the 16th to 19th century-ish, because it is argued that even 200 years plus or minus can be added to this, which is two whole new centuries. Now, the time of cooling during this period was so significant that the degrees changed up to 1 to 2 degrees Celsius, and that is one huge change. So with having the battle between super elites and mini elites, and then having the ideas from the Renaissance period and the Protestant Reformation mixed with the Little Ice Age on top, you can imagine that the 17th century was not a fun one to live in, which is why it is known by some historians who argue for it that this was a general crisis. And how it affected the actual people that lived was just unfair because there was a huge demographic decline primarily due to the war, climate, and migration of these people. And to put it in perspective, for the whole century, which is a hundred years, here's some nations and the years of peace that they actually endured during the 17th century. You have Poland leading number one with 27 years, then the Dutch, who had their golden age, and they apparently only had 14 years of peace, France wound up only having 11 years, and then Spain was able to celebrate three years of peace out of a hundred for that whole century. On top of that, the 30-year war, I already told you about how many million-ish people died. Well, 15 to 30% of the German population was decimated from this war. And then on top of that, you had a cooling period where temperatures dropped 1 to 2 degrees Celsius, which affected the crops, which also helps, you know, unrest society. And now, there are some arguments to be made why this general crisis can't really be viewed as a crash. For example, one historian argues that the Dutch experienced the Golden Age economically, and they were actually a great power during this time. So that's a fair argument. Another one claims that the protest wars and the revolts that happened didn't actually challenge the legitimacy of these rulers. So essentially, all these wars, protests, different ideas of thinking didn't actually change the way of thinking. You still had super elites ruling. It was just a battle of which super elite could get to the top. Personally, I think that's a weak argument, but there's a stronger one where one historian argues this age of commerce idea. You see, in the Southeast Asian ports, they had a heavy demand of imports and exports, which often created trade conflicts and trade relations as well. Well, they were able to put a time scale throughout a couple centuries of how the trade conflicts and relations went amongst each other. And one historian argues that during the 17th century, these southeast ports were actually during moderate times and the conflicts weren't too bad if you compare them to other centuries. So that is a more valid argument, I think. But the number one reason most historians debate whether the crisis can qualify as a crash or even a crisis as well is because it is just too generalized and you can't have one specific event pinpoint how it leads to another or you can't pinpoint how one country's actions directly affected another one. So because everything is too generalized in this 17th century, 
That is one reason that is heavily debated whether you can classify it as a general crisis or a general crash, because historians can look at other centuries and say, hey, this one was worse. And personally, I tend to agree with at least this last point made, because although the 17th century was probably a hell to live in, there isn't one specific data point or one specific event that can be like, hey, look at this, this was a market crash. In total, it was probably just a hundred years of hell. Now, there could also be other centuries others can look at, but I'm leaning more on this general crisis not really being a crash. I do think there was a crisis to be had, but to call something a general crisis and say it happened in the 17th century could actually be misleading from a historic point of view, because like others have said on the not for a crash side, that you can look at another century and argue that this one was worse. So in terms of whether or not there was a general crisis crash, I can't say personally, but I'm leaning more on that it wasn't. But I did think it was important to share at least just the developments of how certain societies, economic factors, and even climate, something that's not really in your control, can affect just global life. Because back then, Europe, China, and India was primarily what the world was comprised of. No one really knew about North America at the time. So there you have it. You now have a timeline of when the first crash, at least for history, was recorded all the way until the 17th century. And this is just going to be a part one of, I'm thinking, a three or four part series for stock market crashes because there's a lot of crashes, at least that happen as more modern and technologies happen in the markets and just the world in general. Now, there's no promise that the next episode that I launch is going to be the part two for the stock market crashes because there are also a couple other projects I'm working on. For example, the one toy that everyone knows or has at least heard of, Lego, at one point in 2000 to 2003, almost went bankrupt. And I read a whole book about it, and I'm working right now on a summary just so I can put it on a precise timeline to share with you. I think it's very interesting to see how a company, one of the leading global companies in toys right now, nearly went bankrupt just 20 years ago. And I definitely would like to share on this podcast how they got out of it. On top of that, I'm also starting a master's program here in October, which is going to take me about a year. So as I go along in that program, if I learn any neat accounting tricks or any neat ideas from there, I'll be sure to share those as a little lesson plan as well. I'll still be working on my stock market analysis, but one thing I realized even doing these generalized stock market crashes, they're going to get more and more complex and they can even get more detailed. So I definitely want to make sure I cover as much basis as I can, which also means I'm taking a lot of time into doing the research to make sure that I'm providing you as much detail to give you an idea of what began the rise of this crash, what things were going like in the middle of it, and kind of the aftermaths of it. It's obviously a lot harder to do that in terms of when there's not as much evidence, but now since I've covered all the way up to the 17th century, we're going to start seeing, at least in part two of this stock market crash video, how there is more evidence and more details, so I can have more of a flow, a beginning, middle, and end to a stock market lesson. 
And I really hope you learned something new today, and I really hope that this lesson doesn't scare you. If anything, it should make you more optimistic about the future. To see how many stock market or regular crashes there have been in history, and people just prevail. Now history often tends to repeat itself, and me personally, I think we're due for one very soon. Especially with how stupid the Federal Reserve and everyone else on the top levels, your administration, your government, global governments, have been with money the past two years. Now they're going to be using COVID and the Ukraine war and the Russian war as an excuse and as a scapegoat. But in reality, numbers don't lie, and they were doing this BS well before that. And you know what they say about history is that it often repeats itself, not in the exact same way, but it typically has the same rhyme. And I believe that if you at least cover your basis in learning how each stock market crash came up to be, then maybe you can prepare yourself, or at least somewhat expect one coming, because you'll know that something sounds like a similar tune. I'm honestly praying that I'm wrong, but looking at our representatives and looking at our administration, they've been wrong in the past, and it seems like they're wrong again now. But on a more brighter note, I still hope you learned at least one piece of valuable information today, whatever it might be. And if you sat through and listened to this whole episode, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out. episodes, feel free to learn some more if you haven't already. Yeah, and I'm still holding strong on my Bed Bath & Beyond and GameStop, baby.